We're continuing our World Upside Down series. Pastor John kicked us off last week. We are in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, verses 43 through 48. If you have a pew Bible, that's page 899. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. While you're turning, I will pray. Lord, I pray that as we come to your word this morning, that you would open our hearts to hear from you, that you would, Lord, push down any barriers of our heart, any pride, Lord, that would uh, resist what you would have to say, that you would give us grace and humility to receive, and hope, Lord, that you would transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew five forty-three through 48. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's Word. I enjoy doing bedtime readings uh, for my kids. And at the stage now, it's down to the last two doing bedtime readings. The others, they do fine reading themselves. Um, as does number three. But anyways, a recent story that I was reading to them was Love Your Enemies. It was a book that Becca found somewhere and said, hey, start reading this. So I did. And two main characters, essentially there were other characters, Mr. Rogers, not the one that you know, um, someone named Mr. Rogers, and then uh, a girl named Betty or something like that. It takes place in a suburbs of Boston, And Mr. Rogers is nursing a 20-year grudge where he had a friend who, in a moment of Mr. Rogers' personal financial need, did not help him or didn't show compassion. And 20 years have gone by, and now Mr. Mr. Rogers has a business, and that estranged friend now owes him $15,000 as a business deal. And so Mr. Rogers goes, he looks into his uh, safe, and he sees the notes, the IOUs for 5,000, three of them each, due Monday. Monday comes, and he's hopping on the train to go into town, and uh, another friend says, hey, would you mind accompanying my daughter to the next stop? Her grandma's going to be there. I have to go do something. He says, sure. So here comes Betty. So we have Mr. Rogers and Betty. And Betty's a little girl, and she's telling him, you know, I go to Sunday school, and we had this Sunday school story about love your intimates. Of course, she's talking like, you know, four-year-old lisp and everything. Love your intimates. And so, do you know what an intimate is, Mr. Rogers? No. Well, an intimate is somebody who breaks your toys. And they say mean things to you. And, and, and so, she says, you know, so, so there's, there's, there's this kid, Billy. You know, he broke the nose of my doll. And he said, or my bunny, and he said, you know, this is a silly bunny. 
And so anyways, you know, she goes on and then she finds out later that Billy, he broke his bike. And she says, you know, I was talking to the Lord and I was saying, God, I'm so thankful that he broke his bike. (laughs) And then she says, but then I realized that's not loving my intimates. So she, she repented and then she actually offers Billy she tells Mr. Rogers, I offer Billy my bike. And of course, Mr. Rogers is feeling overwhelmed with guilt and, 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 and he's convicted and he realizes he needs to show mercy to the one that owes him $15,000. And, and anyways, the, 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 and, and, and the two actually reconcile. But the point of the story is that loving your enemies, it turns our world upside down. It turns upside down the way we view our own sense of justice. And when people have wronged us, they've crossed the boundary. They have um, gone through the parameters of what we've said. Hey, this is not right. And they've mistreated us. To love your enemies, it, it pushes past all of that. It turns it upside down. Last week, Pastor Johnny opened with the Beatitudes, and we're studying excerpts from Jesus' sermon on the mount. And there's a, there's a rhyme and reason to his sermon. The Beatitudes, they tell us the very value system of what it means to be transformed by grace. And so this morning, this actual passage, I'm entitling the message, Transformation by Grace. There's three things that Jesus is showing us in this little instruction. He's showing us first the opposite of grace. Then he's showing us the way of grace. And finally, he's giving us the goal of grace. The opposite of grace, the way of grace, the goal of grace. Let's consider the opposite. Jesus, his first statement is, you have heard that it was said. This is the last in six instances where he's introducing a topic, you have heard that it was said, and then he's going to contrast that topic. But what is it that he was saying that they've heard? You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, where did they hear that? They certainly didn't hear that in the, in the Bible, because if you study the Old Testament, it never says to hate your enemy. What is he getting at here? And as an aside, I would say, this is probably the most studied sermon of all time, of all sermons in all places. The Sermon on the Mount is the most studied, yet it's also probably the most misunderstood. You see, because for this section of the sermon, some would say, oh, Jesus is, he's giving us a new commandment. Or some would say, well, he's extending what the law told us, and he's kind of giving it more. That's not what he's doing at all. He's not in any way pushing back on what the Old Testament has said. And in fact, he's not even critiquing what the Old Testament has said. What he's dealing with here is the oral tradition of the Pharisees and the scribes. He's alluded to them already. And how do we know that? Well, consider what Jesus is saying. Considering, consider the phrasing in verse 43. You have heard that it was said. There's something about what they've heard, not what they've read, what they've heard. When Jesus refers to Scripture, if you're familiar with his 
interaction with Satan in the wilderness, Jesus' preface by that is, it is written when he refers to the Bible. So he's not referring to Old Testament or Scripture. He's referring to oral tradition, things that they've heard. And what's going on here is that the Pharisees and the scribes in their oral tradition, which they held in high regard, they actually considered it as the same authority as the Scripture itself, is in their reading of the Old Testament, and they're sort of trying to parse things out and be specific about, well, what does this mean? They came up with this idea that to love your enemies, or sorry, to love your neighbor really means to love the people who are the people of Israel and to hate everybody else. And that's what Jesus is critiquing. He's saying this is the opposite of grace. Religion which is what the Pharisees and the scribes were proliferating. Religion is not based on grace. What religion does is it says, okay, here are the rules, but here's how far the rules go. They don't go any further than that. And therefore, if, all I, if, if, if we were to look at the sanctuary from a, uh, in, in a plane of, of, of two dimensions... And, and we said, well, if the law is only this carpet up here, you know, we could do that. But Jesus is saying, no, the law is all of the, it's the whole floor. And what the Pharisees and scribes were doing is saying, well, it only goes this far. We only have to love the people who are like us, who think like us, who look like us, who do what we do, who value what we value. And we can hate everybody else. And we're keeping the law. Look at us, righteous people. That's what they were saying. But Jesus is saying, that doesn't demonstrate a heart that's been transformed by grace, you see. Because, in fact, what he says is, he's like, Jesus says, well, look at the tax collectors, the people that you hate. Look at the Gentiles, the people that you hate. They do what you're doing. So how are you different? So, there, so therefore, what, you're, what your understanding of law is is not one of grace. Both religion and irreligion, the irreligious, the pagan, Gentiles, they produce in us, well, I, would, I should say our hearts produce in us. And religion and irreligion don't challenge this idea that we could love those who are like us. We could love those who live near us. We could love those who look like us or who think like us. But we just sort of disdain others. Isn't that what our society does? Isn't that in our polarized world, isn't that where we are? That the right says, the, the, the political right and the political left, though they're ideologically separated, their ethics are the same. Effectively, they say, we will celebrate those who agree with us. We will vilify those on the other side. They both say that, right? Isn't that true? Or if we look at the sort of um, societal... Uh, um, mantra of inclusion. Well, that works only for those who are also inclusive. But as soon as you are not inclusive, then you're not included in the inclusion. You're excluded, right? I know that that sounds a little twisted, but you understand what I'm saying, that the ethic is the same. And so whether by religion or irreligion, we end up with the same ethic of loving our neighbor and hating our enemy, that is the condition of the human heart. Yet Jesus is saying 
That's not what the law says. I was, uh, I got to log on and, and watch the live stream of Lori Weatherly's funeral yesterday, as many of you know. She went on to be with the Lord. Pastor John's and Tammy's daughter-in-law went to be with Jesus last week, and they had her funeral yesterday in Philadelphia. And over the course of the week, I knew that this was going to happen. Pastor John told me that, that Kale, her husband, was going to eulogize her. And I just thought about the situation that he was in, and I couldn't, I couldn't fathom yet. Certainly, that was, you know, the right thing. And so during his eulogy, which was powerful, and he held it himself, he kept himself, you know, together. He talked about how Lori, as an educator, as a professor at um, uh, Florida State University, you know, how she, she began to have a love for the oppressed. And she studied things like slavery. And I appreciate, and it, what was so powerful is that he said, she had compassion on the slave and the slaveholder. That she had compassion for the abused and the abuser. You see, she understood grace. That, that's what grace does. That's how grace shapes your view of your enemy. Jesus is dealing with the opposite of grace, but he's, he's going to challenge how we view our neighbor and how we view our enemy based on an understanding of grace. Love those who are like you, however you define it, ethnically, ideologically, culturally, etc. And hate, denigrate, vilify, demonize those who are not and neither, who are not like you, is at the heart of how the human expression lives. Only grace transformed the heart. You see, re re religion and irreligion, they don't challenge the heart on this level, but Jesus does. That's what he's doing here. So let's consider the way of grace. He goes on to say in his contrasting statement, but I say to you, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, it's important to point out, and we haven't studied it together, but you're likely familiar, and if not, you can check it out later. But just above this section, Jesus has been talking about, you know, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, in verse 38. Um, Jesus is saying, but I say, don't resist the one evil. You turn the other cheek. You go the extra mile, et cetera. Those are sort of the passive ways of Someone is harming you and you passively, you're, 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 not, you're not reacting. He's taking it a step further and he's saying, not only should you not react in hate, he's saying you should actually love your enemy. And you should pray for the one who persecutes you. Consider the idea of persecution. Over the years, 2,000 years of, of Christianity has taken on many forms and even before that, when you look at the Old Testament, there was persecution of the prophets. In the first century in the Roman Empire, in second century, persecution was essentially if you were found at the times when it was at its height, if you found to be a Christian, it could cost you your life. And we have excerpts from martyrs, I think it's Pep Pepitua, around A.D. 100 or so, 
uh, and other, you know, famous martyrs during that period. And, um, you know, you look at Revelation and you see the voice of the martyrs crying out for, God, how long? When will you avenge our, our blood? Well, it was in probably third century, fourth century or so, the, the form of persecution began to shift. It wasn't so much about, hey, we're going to kill you if you're a Christian and if you don't renounce your faith. We will torture you if you are a Christian in the you know, third or fourth century or thereabout. And so those who were brought before the officials, they were tortured. Hey, we can't. No, I won't. We're torturing, and they get tortured. They were known as the confessors. You see, because they went through persecution, they were tortured, but they kept, and they, they said, you know, I still confess Jesus. They, kept, they, they were able to live. And actually, what's interesting is that the, the church during that period was having to wrestle with, what do we do with those who renounce their faith in the face of persecution and then want to rejoin the church afterwards? Well, you know, fast forward, you've got Middle Ages and you've got, um, you know, different things happening. You could be burned at the stake as, as one who um, was proclaiming the ways of God. Um, you've got the Crusades and all of that. But what's interesting in the modern day is that we still have persecution. I, I was reading this book, Heavenly Man. It's about this Chinese brother in Christ who himself faced uh, corporal punishment for being a Christian, was imprisoned, was beaten many times. God moved supernaturally in his life. In one occasion, uh, I think his shackles fell off, the, the, the door of the prison opened, and he was able to just walk away, and his captors didn't even see him. He was able to escape. But he talks about in his coming to the United States and North America, he says that, you know, for us in China, persecution for being a Christian is physical, but in your culture, persecution is reputational, right? It's about, well, if you, if you say you're a Christian, there's all these reputational concerns that it will impact you in your work, in your, just the sphere of influence that you may have in society in general. And Jesus calls us to pray for those who persecute us. Our way our society's way of dealing with persecution would be to say, well, we cancel that or, you know, boycott that or whatever. Use our power to overcome their power in some way, shape, or form. But Jesus calls us to pray for those who persecute us. You see, it's only, it's only, it's only grace that could enable us to even think that way. And, and, and really, if, to fully understand this, we have to fully understand the nature, or as he has revealed himself, the nature of God. Because he gives us a couple reasons, a couple, of, a couple of instances of grace as the reason why we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. In verse 45, he says, one of the ways, one of the reasons is that so you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, Jesus is not giving us some moralism. That totally doesn't cohere with everything else he's teaching. He's not saying the way that you become a son or daughter of the Father is you do all of these things. That's not what he's saying, right? That's a misunderstanding of the sermon. Jesus is talking about the way of the kingdom, those whose lives have been transformed by grace, and he's giving us moral imperatives. 
here's how you live as one who is a son of God, who is a daughter of God. You don't represent the father whom you serve by hating people, by taking out vengeance, either verbally or on social media or any sort of of other vindictive way. But to fully imitate who I am and who the Father is, you love your enemies. You pray for those who persecute you. That, we could say, is God our Father, is our Father by adoption. That is the grace of salvation. But Paul, or Jesus also says, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The rain that's happening today, that's not just, it's not just Christian farmers that are getting their crops wet. It's, it's farmers without respect to how they view who God is. When the stock market goes up, it doesn't just bless those that are Christians. The portfolios of those who hate God, those who are atheists, increase as well. That's God's common grace. We all experience it. In fact, we can even get confused by it. You see, because you might, you might look at a neighbor or your friend or someone that you know, and they're not a Christian, and they live a lifestyle that it's totally, okay, that's not what Scripture says, but they're blessed. And you can get confused. You think, well, well maybe the gospel is really not that important, because look at their life. Or maybe following Scripture is not that important because, look, they're not, they're not hurting. They're experiencing God's common grace. That grace will be insufficient on the day of judgment. You need a saving grace for that. You need to embrace who Jesus is and receive what he's done for you in order for your experience in judgment to go well. God is a God who blesses those that hate him, those who revile his name. Jesus blessed those who persecuted him. He forgave his captors on the cross. It's because of the grace of God and only because of his grace that you could love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What's the goal of this? What is Jesus getting at, and what is God wanting to do by His Spirit in our lives? Well, verse 48 says, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus concludes this thought, this section, with this thought, and it's another point of contrast. He's contrasting, well, if you, if you play this out, if you love only your neighbors and you hate your enemies, well, everybody's doing that. The gangbangers do that, right? They greet their gang friends. How are you any different? Your your life's not transformed. Your heart isn't transformed. You haven't experienced real grace. But he's concluding this thought in this section with this idea, you, therefore, must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Now, before I get to that, let me just fill in the other, the other thought here. I said that there were a couple of attributes of God that we need to fully understand to fully get this. And we talked about common grace. We talked about saving grace. There are some things about God that we are called to imitate as Christians whose hearts are transformed. 
There are other things about God that we will never be able to imitate, right? It's called his communicable attributes and his non-communicable attributes. Communicable attributes, God calls us to love. God is love. He calls you to love. God is merciful. He calls you to be merciful. God is omnipresent and omniscient. You will never be, even in your glorified state. That's non-communicable. And you look at this, and you could say, well, wait, perfect? I can't be perfect. What are you talking about, Jesus? It's important to understand what Jesus is talking about is not the way we're, we define or think about perfection when we say perfect, like I got 100. Jesus isn't saying God gets 100, you get 100 all the time. Don't ever fail. Of course not. Of course not. But what he is saying is, God is simple. He's integrated. He's not wishy-washy. He's not up and down. He's not saying one thing and doing another. And Jesus is saying, you need to be like that too. You, the Old Testament puts it this way, you therefore be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Your, you see, religion, religion works on the outside. The Pharisees are like, and the scribes, what they were like, are like children who play by the beach, play on the beach by the ocean. And they build sand dunes against the law, the tide of the law, saying it can come no further than this. But Jesus comes and he washes all that away. You see, you see, what the Pharisees were, their penchant was, they would put a fence around the law. I alluded to it earlier with the, the carpet analogy. They would say, well, okay, the only way I can be righteous is, is it, the only way we can be righteous is if we say, well, the law only comes this far. We'll put a fence around it, and, and, but we'll play outside the fence. And, you know, and, but we're good. We're righteous. We're, everything in the fence, we're keeping outside, you know, free game, fair game. Jesus comes and he pushes that away and he says, this is the full extent of what the law means. You need to not just be demonstrating outwardly that you love your neighbor, it needs to work on the inside as well. Be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. One of the things you could say Jesus is getting at is, well, he, he's trying to set us free. You and I, we spend an awful lot of time being worried about what other people are thinking of us. Here's what I mean. Well, it used to be the case, I, I was thinking in my old frame of mind being in the city, you know, you get on the train, I can't believe that person just bumped me, I can't, they, I can't believe you're on the highway, they just cut me off, I can't believe that, you're thinking bad, evil thoughts about them. Translate that into your daily activities, maybe it's your, I, I, don't, I don't know, probably not in your commute, it's not that long. Um, but maybe when you get to work, I can't believe my coworker is asking me for that, for that again, or my boss, or this person, or that person. I can't believe they did that. I can't believe they said that. You know, if we think about the, th what you know, what's what's your uh, your what is the thing that really gets at you? Is it being misunderstood? Is it being lied about? Is it being mistreated? Is it feeling oppressed? You know, those are all legitimate things. 
But what's the thing that really just gets under your skin and you're, you're, and then you, you just, I can't believe that. I can't believe they, they did that. You know, they did that again. We spend an awful lot of time worrying what other people think about us. And, and if we love our, if we have the grace to love our enemy and pray for those who persecute us, it actually sets us free. We're able to not just see them for what they've done, but we could see them for who they are. Not in a bad way, not in a pejorative way, but as one who either needs mercy or maybe they're not even a Christian and they, they need ultimate mercy from God and we can be an advocate for their salvation in prayer. Ultimately, what this reminds us of is that it's what the Father did for us. You see, you were God's enemy. Paul the Apostle goes on this line of reasoning in, in Romans chapter 5, and he says, you know, for a good person, someone might die. For a righteous person, maybe, maybe not. He says, but God sent his son that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You, you were an enemy of God. He poured out his grace on you. God didn't pour grace out on you because you were a nice guy or a nice girl. You were an enemy, and he poured out his love. And if the, the more that we're able to understand that, the more that it transforms our view of other people, the, the, the more grace there is to pray for our enemies and those who persecute us and to love our enemies. What does this all mean? Well, let me ask you a question. Do you operate with a view of love and neighbor like the Pharisees and scribes where you draw a line? Where you say, well, I'm nice to my friends. I'm good to my friends. Doesn't that justify me? Or are you challenged and, and to go all the way as Jesus does to love your enemies? If you, if you sit with that, I've sat with this this whole week. It pounds on you. Lord, how often we fall short and fail in this way. But see, this is the beauty of the sermon. It pushes you all the way back to the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. This brings you to the place of being poor in spirit. You're realizing, yes, my heart has been transformed. Yes, I have been great, one who has received grace. But, Lord, I struggle to offer it to others. Yet I have hope in knowing, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who realize I don't have it. I don't do it right. I need help. That is the beauty of what Jesus is, is teaching us. Blessed are the mourn, those who mourn over their sin and even mourn in their persecution. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That's God's promise to you as you embrace loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your great love for us. Lord, in the busyness of life, in the emotions of what we experience, we often forget about how love started with you loving us. We can often get caught up in what it means to love others or the things that are our duties. May we be transformed by grace. May we be those that embody the attributes of the Beatitudes. Lord, that we could recognize the hope in fulfilling what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.